Welcome to another episode of the Hat Collecting Talk Show, where we talk about the many different metaphorical hats that people wear in our lives, because no one does just one thing, and everyone has a story. Uh, today, I, or sorry, I, I am your host, Lacey Artemis, a creative Jill of all trades in Toronto, Canada. And uh, today, my guest is Mobot, who is a city builder, a movement artist, a body nerd, an outdoor enthusiast, and more. Mobot's pronouns are she and they for the listeners. Uh, welcome to the show, Mobot. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so the first question, the kind of icebreaker here, um, I like to ask the guests, where did they grow up? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Treaty 6 territory uh, in a place some call Sherwood Park, which is just outside of the so-called Edmonton region. Um, Treaty 6 territory is a traditional meeting ground, a gathering place, and a traveling route for the Cree, the Soto, the Blackfoot, the Métis, the Dene, the Nakota Sioux, and many other uh, First Nations who sort of lived and uh, worked and explored around the plains uh, in Alberta and beyond. Um, I am currently living as an uninvited guest on the unceded traditional territories of the Skohomish, the Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples, uh, which is a place some people know as Vancouver out here in British Columbia. Um, but I have lived in other places as well, so I will maybe get into that as the show goes. Um, since yours, I, I love that you started with that. Uh, that is something that um, as, as you know, and as the audience knows that we do that. So I'm going to go ahead and do my land acknowledgement now, um, kind of switch up the order slightly here, but, um, Toronto or Tecoronto is located on the traditional unceded territory of the Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nations, the Huron-Wendat, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and the Anishinaabe. This is a dish with one spoon treaty territory, and I am an uninvited visitor on this land as well. For more on these, you can go to native-land.ca. Despite the, the .ca, that actually covers the whole world and not just Canada. So that's a good place to get started, but definitely not the place to end your learning about uh, the, the Indigenous peoples of, of your area. Um, so with that said, um, I like to ask, because uh, I didn't actually know where you did grow up. So it's kind of, a, it was a little bit of a surprise for me. Um, but uh, are there any kind of like uh, true or, uh, yeah, true or false uh, stereotypes or, or misconceptions about that place that you'd like to briefly address? Yeah, I really, you know, I really struggled with thinking about this question because um, I have only spent three of the last 15 years in Alberta and I feel like I just don't know the place as well anymore. Like in some ways, nothing feels like it's changed. And in other ways, I know like a lot has changed. Um, and I find like stereotypes can be so like othering and divisive that I don't necessarily like to lean into them um and I also feel that like because I have lived across Canada in a bunch of different places there's a lot of different people in a lot of different places and like things that I thought were Alberta stereotypes exist in every other place I've ever lived in as well so yeah I don't know if there's like anything that I want to say about that specifically that's totally fine um on that uh, sort of an extension of that, a new question I've been adding uh, in some cases, um, do you think that there's any lasting influence that your um, your origin place uh, has had on you that remains to this day? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
it's not a stereotype, but I mean, Alberta is oil country. Like it is oil and gas central out there. It's beef country. I've been a vegetarian for over 25 years. Um, I also spent time in the Rocky Mountains and the wild, beautiful, pristine places. And I think like this juxtaposition of like oil and gas and extractive destruction, um, you know, just butted up right against these amazing, beautiful, wild places uh, has had a huge impact on how I think about the world, on our responsibility as, you know, aware beings on the world to like step lightly and to make choices that are, you know, good for the home we all share, um, you know, hugely formative. Like I got into, you know, my very first science project was about the hole in the ozone layer in like the 80s. And I have always been concerned about that stuff from day one. And I think being confronted with some of the realities of how people think about the Alberta economy just for years and years, um, just further like drilled in the importance of thinking about how we are in this world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and kind of like what you were saying about like, you know, it's changed, but it's also still largely the same. Like I feel kind of like that about Oshawa, which is where I grew up. Uh, I haven't lived there for over 10 years now, but I do go back there regularly because my, my, some of my family still lives there. And, um, I, I've kind of noticed some of the ways it's changed. It's, it's turning into much more of like a big boxy suburb. Um, but then also a lot of what I grew up with having there is, is still there. So it's this really, and even going back to my like parents' house, um, which they recently moved to a different one, but, um, they've done a lot of like renovations on that house. And so actually as they were um, packing up, getting ready to move out of there, which wasn't actually my childhood home, but it was the the home that I spent my formative years, my high school years in. And so I went there and I actually record, like I did like a video tour through the entire house and just kind of recorded like thoughts and memories. Cause I'm like, I'm never going to be able to do this again. So that house had kind of started to feel like half foreign because it was, still the same house but so much had been like changed and and anyways uh, a little bit of a a detour there uh tangent um so since we've already done the land acknowledgements and again thank you very much for that um now we get into the juicy stuff um you get to i would like to ask you to share um a little bit more about things that you do and how you got into them sure so um The first thing in my bio is that I'm a city builder and I like to use the word city builder or city shaper or city co-creator to sort of describe my work. Um, I I currently work for a small municipality in the Metro Vancouver region. Um, I'm a project manager responsible for delivering Uh, major capital projects in the active mobility network. So think bike projects and walk projects and public transit projects. Um, I've been sort of specialized in public transportation uh, and micro mobility is what we call like bike and walk projects for for most of my career. Um, And I really stumbled upon planning by accident, like um, growing up in Alberta, um, there weren't planning schools at either of the major universities in Alberta until quite recently. And I didn't know anyone who worked in the public sector in those types of jobs, like as an engineer or anything like that. So there was never any like thought in my mind that like, oh, people 
plan the city. Like it's, it seems so obvious to me now, but like, I didn't know that that was actually a thing you could do. And uh, when I was finishing up my undergraduate degree at the U of A, I was thinking about applying to do an engineering master's degree. I was really interested in networks and efficiency and logistics. And I love math and all that kind of stuff. Um, but as I was writing the applications, there was just something in my heart that didn't feel right. Like it just didn't, it felt like going down that path was going to take me into a much more academic and heady space than I really wanted. Um, you know, kind of connected to that whole environmental angle. I really wanted to be directing my career energy into something that was focused on how we could live better in the world together. And planning felt very real. It felt very on the ground. Um, transportation is still all about networks and efficiency and doing more with the space that we have. And so I just kind of pivoted. And like a week before applications were due, I applied to a bunch of planning schools and I got into a few of them and I chose to go to the U of, U of T, uh, which is what took me out to Toronto. Um, and yeah, it, it was it was one of the best decisions I think that ever happened in my life, um, not just because of the uh, stimulation of the field that I'm in now and all of the possibility I see, but actually going to planning school in Toronto as a, you know, kind of smaller town person from Alberta was really, really formative for me. Um, just seeing a city the size of Toronto, dealing with the complexity it's dealing with and all of the really rich conversations that have been happening, are happening in urban space there. Uh, it was a great place to go to school and it really got me jazzed up about my choice. <laughs> so that's sort of how I like fell into that that position um, or what I'm doing now. and. I've worked in a few cities since then. I worked at Metrolinx, which is sort of the regional transportation authority in the greater Toronto area. Uh, I spent some time back in Edmonton. I worked at the city of Edmonton. I've done some private consulting out here in Vancouver, um, sort of thinking about public transit design and policy. Uh, and now I'm back in the public sector uh, working on bike stuff, which is really kind of my dream. Uh, I've always been a bike person uh, and so being able to focus my like full-time job on that is is really exciting for me um when it comes to movement being a movement artist uh i got put in ballet at the age of three <laughs> uh i grew up in a very formal like competitive dance world which is a kind of intense world uh you hear about soccer moms there's also dance moms and uh you know it's uh it's a pretty wild place to grow up. There's a lot of competition and ranking and judging and all of that. And while I love dancing, I look back now and I think, wow, how would my life have been different if I had been exposed to dance in a non-competitive or exam-oriented environment? Um, so, you know, I quit dancing uh, after high school. I didn't see dance as a career for me. I think I'd been told it wasn't possible to be a dancer or that it maybe wasn't a smart, smart career choice. Um, so I quit dancing and I became a raver. I was like a rave child in the nineties and I was a dancer. I, I danced constantly. I was out every weekend dancing. I love nothing more than dancing under the stars. And, you know, that was my chance to really, I think, come into my own as a person with a body who likes to dance that wasn't, you know, managing formal technique. Um, being in the rave scene, you know, there's a lot of things that happen in the rave scene that are not necessarily, um, 
ways I like to direct my energy. And so I really wanted to be able to stay connected to the electronic music scene. There's so much wonder and beauty in it, but I felt like I needed to be productive in some way, like I needed to be doing something creative. And so I decided to get into fire dancing. Uh, I had never like danced with a prop before, yet I decided that I wanted to light some things on fire and whip them around my body. Uh, So uh, that pulled me into hula hooping. And for the last 15 years, I have been hula hooping, I've been performing, I paid my way through grad school as a hula hoop dancer. I teach hooping more now, or I teach movement classes geared towards flow artists. So um, thinking about ways we can move sustainably with our props, uh, so that our hobbies and our joy doesn't cause injury. So I'm very interested in those connections. Um, Hula hooping and the circus world got me into aerial arts. And for a while, I was studying aerial silks and aerial hoop. Uh, I've been without a place to hang my gear for about six years, and I'm itching to find the right place to hang my hoop up and play with that in the sky. Um, I've been doing yoga for about 20 different, 20 years, uh, many different styles, um, many different approaches, um, and some injuries through that journey. And, um, by kind of walking down the path of injury, uh, it sort of led me into the worlds of functional movement and resilience-based practices where it's uh, an opportunity to take my movement art and be less focused on aesthetics, like, oh, my movement should look a certain way, or I should hold a posture in a certain way for it to be correct. And I've been really shifting my movement curiosities to be focused on what feels good for my body, what feels good for the structure and shape of my body, um, and how can I co-create movement explorations with other people. So it's been a long arc. I've been a dancer my whole life. And, you know, I've choreographed shows. I've been part of shows. Um, It's kind of never ending. Um, And I guess that kind of like bleeds into the body nerd uh, sort of area. Um, I've, I've moved a lot away from just dance and taking what people give me and playing with it and really wanting to understand my anatomy, um, the biomechanical function of the joints and the muscles and how by, you know, nurturing more of a felt sense and a technical sense and awareness of my body, how that can change my own movement practice and, you know, kind of what it means to be a researcher uh, researching this body as the primary subject um, and and learning from other people about what they're noticing in their bodies and, and seeing what can be teased out of that. So those two kind of go hand in hand. Um, and then the last thing that I think was in my bio was Uh, being an outdoor enthusiast. And I think there's a lot of ways you could define outdoor enthusiasm. Um, From a young age, I've just always been fascinated with nature, studying it, trying to come up with like science experiments, you know, like staring at a puddle for half an hour. Like uh, there was a lot of things I would do to just sort of examine the natural world, Um, you know, collecting little bugs and building them ecosystems and, and things like that. Um, you know, it's really where my sense of awe and wonder at 
the earth that we live on came from. Um, you know, and as I've been getting more and more into hiking and long distance cycling, um, I've really noticed how my my movement practice doesn't necessarily support some of the things my body is trying to do when it comes to hiking, you know, and carrying a really heavy backpack and going out into the woods for a week. Um, so it's been really interesting to sort of take my body knowledge and start to apply it to um, like hiking and cycling and how to sort of have a sustainable outdoor practice. Um, and all these things just kind of bleed together. Like, how do I cycle up a mountain in a way that's sustainable? How do I, um, yeah, how do I interact with like the ground I'm walking on so that my hips don't hurt at the end of the day? Uh, and so like my enthusiasm for being outside is really supported by all of that body stuff. So yeah, that, that's, that's that. <laughs> You, you're, you're a very uh, well-rounded person and that is, that is awesome. Um, and I definitely think you're going to have a lot of wisdom to share. So that's really exciting. Um, if you can kind of, uh, I don't want to like kind of rush you on this, but like if you can kind of maybe briefly talk about what you think maybe is one of the biggest misconceptions of um, like city building and like body movement stuff. Yeah, I can be pretty brief on this one. I think um, when it comes to planning and, and cities, um, one of the biggest misconceptions, I think, is that our cities don't change, that they're uh, somehow fixed in time as their perfect expression of themselves. Um, you see this a lot in public opposition to projects, whether that's a new development in a community or a new transit project that's being designed that's going to bring change to the community. And change is constant. Our cities especially if you look at, you know, older cities in Europe or in Africa. I mean, these cities have been built over and over and over for hundreds of years. And the idea that some fixed point in time in 1980 when your house was built is like the end of the city changing and that's how it has to be forever is just a major fallacy. And it's that thinking that has really led to the housing crisis that we see across Canada and in many other cities around the world where, you know, this type of thinking is exclusionary. It doesn't provide space for people. It overfavors the priority of those who are securely housed or those who own land. Um, and it doesn't make space for anybody else. And so I think there's a lot of work to do to break down the idea that our cities are not changing um, you know, and, and to really get people to understand that change is constant and stop resisting it. Let's make it better together. And that's the only way forward. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's the big one. Um, when it comes to bodies, I think really there's just the misconception that there's one correct way to do things. Um, I think there's a million different ways we can move our bodies. I think it's really important to think about how we build resiliency in our movement you know, if you do the same thing over and over and over, you're probably going to end up with a repetitive strain injury of some sort. And it's only by thinking about a variety of different ways to do a lunge or lift a weight or mow your lawn, like whatever, whatever the movement is that you're doing, um, being curious and not getting too fixated on what one person told you is the right way to do something, I think is really, really important. Our bodies are different. Your proportions are different than my proportions. 
it doesn't make sense that we would do something the same way. Like we, we all have to find our own way. And I think that can be overwhelming for people. I think people sometimes they want an answer, especially if they're just learning to move or getting into fitness or something. People are really seeking out like the confidence, I guess, that comes with having a clear answer. And so, you know, I recognize sometimes you need to have an answer to start, but, you know, as you sort of move in your own fitness journey, I think it's really important for people to be really curious and questioning, like, why, why is that the recommendation? How does that recommendation land in my body? And how might I want to explore modifying or changing that recommendation to better serve me in what I need today or in this moment? I think you uh, pointed out a very, very important uh, little piece of wisdom there, and that, that I've, I can think of several other uh, examples or instances where uh, I've seen people, or even myself, like I'm guilty of this sometimes too, where um, somebody will just kind of tell you something, and then you just kind of like internalize, okay, that's the way. And like I, the first thing that popped into my head was the whole thing with like the, uh, the, the Myers-Briggs or the like just different kind of ways to kind of understand yourself. And if, if you get your, your result and it's like, okay, you are that and that's what you have to be forever. And it's like, no, people, like you said, people, everything is constantly changing. So, um, you know, the answer today may not be the answer tomorrow, may not be the answer next week. So um, we have to just be kind of open to change and, um, and you know, like I say, stay curious and just try to keep learning and growing. Um, so thank you so much for sharing those. That was, that was great. Um, so the next question here, when you were a child, uh, do you remember what you wanted to be or to do when you grew up? Yeah, I, I don't really actually have that many memories. And I think it's kind of a shame looking back, like for a while, I think I wanted to be a marine biologist. I think this was when like the movie Free Willy came out or something like, I don't know, I was just, you know, I thought it was so cool to think about the ocean and the creatures. But I think it's also funny because I don't like swimming. So I don't think I really understood what a marine biologist does and that you probably would be in the water a lot. Um, but I, I really don't think I had that many like focused or fixated goals. Um, I remember really internalizing the message that being a dancer is not a smart career move. Um I grew up in a pretty traditional conservative home where, you know, dad went to work, mom stayed home. Um, working in an office was what you're supposed to do. And, you know, I kind of wonder how my journey would have changed if I had had a more open-ended sort of message, you know, and I think I was always given the message that you can be whatever you want to be. But there was a lot of internalized stuff about financial security or the idea that a dancer at the age of 29 won't be able to dance again. I mean, I turn 40 next month and I'm still dancing more than I ever have. So, yeah, it's it's interesting to sort of see how some of the things that you like take in at a really young age can like almost stunt your ability to think about what's possible. Um yeah, maybe that's what I'll say about that. <laughs> yeah, that, that kind of also factors into a, uh, a later question in the show, uh, which is kind of interesting. Um, so the next question here, uh, we're sort of still kind of, I guess this is kind of wrapping up the like um, examining your kind of like your path and, and, and where you are and how you got there. 
um, I, I used to kind of ask people, you know, where were they at kind of at the age of 30 or where they think they would be based on that idea of that we're, that's when we're supposed to have things figured out. And um, But now I'm asking because uh, I feel like it's more, it's more telling or more um, uh, useful to kind of know like, what age did people actually, were they actually at when they kind of found their path or whatever they're doing that is kind of their like fit or what seems like their fit? Yeah, I mean, work-wise, I, I have been working as a planner for almost 15 years now. Um, if you include kind of grad school and, and the lead into that, um, I still don't even know if I'm on the right path. Like this is the longest I've ever committed to it a job, even though I've worked several different positions. Um, but being stuck in front of a computer all day is absolutely killing me. And I don't know how long I'm going to be able to continue doing it. Um, I think a lot often about, you know, how could I continue to contribute to this work and bring all this knowledge into the world in a way that's not so tied to a 40 hour work week in front of a computer. So yeah, that path is still unveiling itself to me. Um, I think I'm okay with that. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure that I like the idea of just committing to this until I retire, whatever that means. Um, so, you know, I think I'm confronted every day with the urgency of the climate emergency that we're all dealing with right now. And so it's really hard to walk away because I think I am doing work that contributes to that. Um, but also like, how do I how do I make sure I'm taking care of myself within that? And, and what does that contribution look like is, is always evolving. So we'll see. <laughs> um, movement wise, like I really do feel in the last, I don't know, probably like five to eight years that I've really come into a new way of understanding and discerning my own level of body awareness and not just taking what people give me as gospel, um, you know, growing up doing ballet, it's like, this is the technique and that's how you do it. And I'm going to poke your butt if you're not like squeezing it the right way or something, you know, like it was so controlled. Um, and it's taken a long time to really undo that, like desire to really fixate on that. And um, doing that has just opened things up to me so much. Like, I feel like I will be able to be dancing when I'm a little old old person now <laughs> you know like I can't I can't wait to be in the park at 80 with my hula hoop just rolling around and I feel like my confidence and body awareness has really started to blossom and and I know now what questions matter to me and how to dig into uncovering maybe questions that I don't know exist yet uh, and I think those skills are going to serve me while well going forward so yeah mid-30s I guess after 30 plus years of doing stuff until I actually felt like I was understanding that. So, you know, I keep reminding myself, like it took me 30 some years to get to that point of awareness. That's a long time, you know, or even, even the job now that I'm in building bike stuff, it took me 12, 13 years to land that position. And, you know, it's been a whole journey. Every step along the way was important to get there. Is it the right path? I don't know. It's the path I'm on now and I'm enjoying it. So we'll see. <laughs> you bring up a pretty, like, there's a couple of things that I want to say in response to that quickly. Like you bring up a good point that like oftentimes these like careers that we talk about, they're 
often not things that you it's like again this is assuming that you go right from high school into a program and then you that program ends up being like you end up sticking with that and getting into that field and then you keep working with that um i know more and more people are are kind of you know like now maybe not so much again because like who can afford to go to university or college two different times. But um, I mean, I know a lot of people who have gone to school, like go post-secondary more than once. And, and then like, if you do change kind of, you know, a few years after high school, or maybe like you're in your thirties and you're like, okay, I need to do something completely different. So you have to kind of start over. So I think our paths, like, we can be on a path that we're like, you know, kind of mostly happy with, but again, leaving, allowing that, that space for, um, cause like for myself, like I, I think I've said it on the show before that my day job is not something that I want to do until, you know, I retire, which I'm not even sure if I'll be able to retire because, you know, <laughs> capitalism and, um, yep. I'm a millennial. Um, but like, it's, it's working for now. And like, I, I've been doing it for about 10 years and, you know, it, it, it gets a little harder each year to be like, okay, another year of this. But at the same time, um, of all the things I could be doing, this actually has been one of the best fits all kind of considered for like my skill set. And, um, I just, I think I'd be a lot happier if I only was doing it like part-time. Like if we had universal basic income and I could, you know, maybe only do like 20 hours a week of that kind of stuff and then be able to spend more time and energy on creative things. Uh, and also I feel like as I'm getting older and this might just be a temporary thing, but like in the last kind of like five years or so, I have been having more health issues popping up and they've kind of been a little bit more like, it, it's just, it seems to kind of keep going. And, and now like I, I have been feeling like my overall capacity to do things has been reducing. And so, whereas before I was very happy, you know, having like five or six projects on the go at any given time. Now it really feels like I can, I'm lucky if I can kind of do two or three and even that feels like it's pushing it. So I might eventually come to that point where I have to just accept, okay, I'm, only going to be able to do like one extra thing outside of work. And that's a, a sad thought, but I'm not there yet. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can, I can really relate to that. Like I've talked to a lot of people in my career field who would love to be working a reduced work week, you know, like 25 to 30 hours as opposed to the 40 uh, and doing more job sharing and stuff like that for exactly that reason, like needing more space to just live. Like I don't, I don't love my work enough that I want it to destroy all of my energy and capacity for other things. Um, yeah, it's, it's really, it's really tricky. And, and to the point about not being able to do as much, like I just feel as I age, you know, my brain only has so much energy. Like I try to be involved in a lot of activism and advocacy efforts and, it's really sad to me to see my declining energy after, you know, years and years of doing this work. Like, how do you keep that sustainable? Um, it's, it's really tough. Capitalism sucks. <laughs> it's brutal. Yeah. And, and that's actually another thing that you, you brought up there. I, I used, like, I've never been like a huge activist. I've done a lot more kind of like passive online type activism, but I have gone to like protests and things and, you know, even before the like lockdowns and everything, that was something that I was definitely finding was was a lot of energy for me to like go to protests and just kind of stand outside for hours and um and just I, I feel bad on the one hand because I'm like I know there's so many people out there who 
could definitely are worse off like are worse off than me and who I could I could help and who I feel like I should help but at the same time you if you destroy yourself for someone else's benefit is that that's not really necessarily the right way to go so I've been I try to create some kind of positive value not in the like capitalistic sense but like um, experience or knowledge or information or connections or resources I try to create some of that through what I do to, to have it still be like a more kind of like a community serving thing while still being kind of a fun and creative process. Um, but yeah, even there, like I'm, I'm still, and again, this could just be temporary. I know the winter is always the hardest for me. And like, now that we're starting to actually get some, some like the hints of spring a couple of days ago, it was like 10 degrees out and sunny. I was just like, Oh my God, I needed this so much. Um, and so I'm actually kind of wearing like a, a shirt here inspired a little bit by spring with some, some flowers on it. And just like, I, I love spring. It, it is so, it saves my soul, <laughs> but uh, so yeah, we'll have to see how, how things kind of go in the next little while, but um, yeah, definitely we're, we're on the same page there. And I'm sure a lot of my listeners uh, feel very similarly. <laughs> um, and so kind of on, oh yeah. And I forgot this sort of sub question uh, and, perhaps we've kind of already touched on it a bit, but I've been asking about like the sort of obstacles that, that prevent us from getting where we want to be or where we hope to be uh, sooner uh, and finding that path. And is, do you think there's like one kind of main or one most prominent in your mind obstacle that you've kind of faced getting to where you are? Yeah, this one's a bit tricky for me because I'm not really good at looking more than like two years in the future, which seems crazy because I'm a planner and I'm constantly having to think about what do the next 30 years look like. But for my own personal life, um, it's hard to look beyond about two years. And so to me, that means like the cone of possibility is enormous, you know, like like the cone of possibility, it expands out away from where you are. And so um, am I on the right or wrong track? I have no idea. But what currently feels like a really present obstacle for me is um, related to land and secure housing. I've been a renter in some of Canada's most expensive housing markets for 20 years, 20 plus years. And um, it's really psychologically um, difficult to be a renter in these places because you know, if your home disappears for whatever reason, um, your rent is going to go up a lot uh, if you have to move again. And I'm also really averse to the whole concept of land ownership. Like I live on stolen land. Who am I to buy land? Like even if I had the resources to buy land tomorrow, who am I to buy land? I, I do not feel that it is my right. I do not feel that land ownership is something that we need. I would love to see the whole concept of land ownership abolished in my lifetime. Um, I'm trying to find out how I can be a steward of the land that I live on, whether that's caring for food, rewilding the land, like what could that look like? And I just don't know what that arrangement for me is. Like, is it me having to buy land to then give the land back? Is it like, like, what is it? And, and I'm really struggling to answer that question right now. Um, you know, as I'm entering my forties and wondering like how much longer I'm going to be working in a job that can afford these rents and, and things like that. So that, that to me feels like a very present obstacle. 
Yeah, and again, just a very quick little um, bit from my side of that. Like, I'm, I just turned 37, so I'm getting close to the 40s myself. And same thing, like, the job that I'm currently in um, pays me better than it should for what it is. And uh, if I ever leave this job or lose this job, I know that there's very little chance that I'm going to make this much money again. And that's a scary thought. Um, because, you know, a lot of millennials, if, if we do lose our job and we can't find something to allow us to keep affording where we live, particularly in, you know, like a big city, then a lot of times we are either forced to, you know, like move and move back in with family or maybe like move in with a friend or something. And it's, you're absolutely right. Like this anyways, yeah, I won't get too much into that. We, we, the point has been made and, and uh, we're on the same page with that. So um, into a little bit more, I guess, fun and light questions now. Um, so I like to ask about, um, you know, play is, is, is very important to the human experience. And so is self care. And these are things that I think that people like, I think being playful and silly is something a lot of people only think of like if it's like your job or if you have kids, like obviously you got to entertain the kids and play with them, but uh, adults still need to kind of have that outlet. And we also need to care for ourselves because capitalism, you know, wants to grind us into nothing. <laughs> so um, it's kind of a two-part question. Uh, what is the last silly or playful thing you did that didn't involve children? And what is the last act of self-care you did for yourself, no matter how small it was? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't have kids, so I actually have a lot of freedom to play every day. Um, <laughs> I don't have a lot of people that I'm responsible for. Um, on Friday night, this is Sunday, on, so just on Friday night, I went to a Zoom birthday party for my friend Heather, and we were taken through an art exercise, uh, a guided art thing. So I just thought I would share here, we drew mandalas. Uh, and so I don't, I don't draw a lot, um, but this was the last kind of playful thing that I did um, that was kind of outside of my normal. You know, I went for a bike ride to the beach yesterday because it was beautiful here. And, you know, I go on hikes and things all the time, which to me is play. Um, and I also encourage people to put their hands on the ground every day, um, like bend down, squat down, touch the earth. It'll keep your body in good shape if you can continue to touch the ground every day. So you don't have to do a handstand. Do one if you want, but like get down there and touch the ground with your hands and see what that does to your body. Um, so there are playful things that I like to do. Um, my self-care is very like movement related, like the bike rides and the hiking is, is huge about that. Um, but I think also like kind of on that activism and advocacy front, I think knowing when to direct my energy outward and knowing when to step back is a huge part of self-care for me as well. And, and recognizing that like, I don't have to be at the front line of every single thing. Every time I can tag people in and out, I can be connected into networks of people that are doing good work in a lot of different ways. And, you know, sometimes my advocacy is funneling money towards these people so that they can do their work. And if I, if I can't physically do it. And so you know, being able to really discern that has been important for my own self-care as well. Absolutely. And again, that is another one of those things that uh, because I haven't as often been able to, um, uh, or 
the word I'm looking for? I haven't been able to provide or, yeah, I haven't been able to provide like time and energy or physical presence as much. So um, I started to try to like just donate more or, or signal boost more, which is, you know, kind of a better than nothing thing. Um, but yeah, that's, that's great. And then that's something, you know, this year, cause now I, I live, uh, I live close to parks, which is, uh, which is exciting. Um, I, I'm, I'm not really a huge outdoor person myself, but like, that's more of like the kind of camping, hiking, fishing, like that stuff doesn't really appeal to me, but like going and playing Frisbee in a park or playing soccer or something, kickball, like I'm all for that stuff. So. <laughs> and I, I really encourage people to not see nature as separate from the city either. Like you don't have to go up on a mountain to be in nature. Like I can walk outside my house and there's a tree in the front yard and there's like nature bursting out of it. Like, we are nature. We exist in the world. And like, I think it's really important that we don't see the city and the wild places as different, but just like this spectrum of the natural world that we are part of and, you know, finding your ways to connect with it in your local park are like just as important, if not more important, because we need to make sure we, we protect those spaces in our cities with everything we have. I feel like I just came up with a new slogan for you. The grass was there first. <laughs> <laughs> we think of it as the, it's, it's like the, 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 there's the city and then there happens to be these parks, but like, no, that was there first. And we like, you know, killed all its, its buddies and, and just left it there as its own thing left. Or so that's a bit of a morbid thought, but <laughs> No, it's true. Um, like the idea of decolonizing the land for me is like, how do we bring all of the traditional plants and species that have been pushed out back into our active urban space? Like the city's here. It's probably not going to not gonna get torn down anytime soon, but like, what are the things we can do to rewild it? Mm-hmm. Um, so that said, um, we talked a lot about, you know, learning and kind of next steps in, in our possible, uh, on our possible paths. Um, so I'd like to ask what, uh, in, in the uh, arena of learning, what is the last new thing that you learned, whether it was a skill or a piece of information, and what is something that you would still like to learn? Um, yeah, so for about the last year, I have started taking flamenco dancing, um, which has been super, super fun. Um, I'm always just interested in rhythms and different traditional forms of dance from all different places. Um, so I've been, I've been into that a lot lately. Uh, similarly, Afrobeats, dance hall, and soca, I've been doing a lot of classes in that area. There's a really active kind of like Afro dance hall scene in Vancouver with lots of people taking classes and offering classes. So I've been very fortunate to be able to dance with all them. Um, I started learning the ukulele in the pandemic. I've been wanting to learn forever. So I've been plucking away and getting over my shyness with singing and trying to share my voice in that way a little bit more. So that's been a whole journey. Um, I think something that I really want to make some space for is to take a more intensive permaculture course. Um, just to think a little bit more explicitly about, you know, I know a lot about permaculture design that I've kind of gleaned over the years and interacting with people I know doing amazing work on the land, but, um, you know, trying to sort of combine permaculture thinking with like indigenous um, land management practices and, and how those things could kind of come together to inform my own thoughts about how I might be able to contribute to land stewardship, I think is definitely something that's like, high on my list and 
I could see myself like signing up for some sort of intensive study program in that area in the near future. Permaculture is another thing that I am interested in and would eventually like to learn more about. So yay for that. <laughs> um, so the next question here, um, I like to, again, going on this idea, I try to relate things back to, to hats where, where possible. Um, so I've been asking the guests, because uh, I like it as a kind of like a perspective thing. Because um, again, we, we're used to kind of, I think people are generally more used to thinking of themselves as like kind of like one thing or maybe kind of like two kind of main things. And so I like to get people to kind of examine uh, more facets of themselves. And so I ask, um, what would you say are your two most dissimilar hats and hats in this context being either skills or interests? Yeah, I mean, obvious one is that most people think being a project manager, like working in the bureaucracy is really far away from being a dancer. <laughs> so um to me, they're just parts of who I am. And that's just a spectrum of things I do. And I don't think I'd be able to do my project management job if I didn't have all my dance and creative outlets. So they're dissimilar, maybe in their form and function, but they're very complementary. And like, I, I couldn't do the desk job without the movement work. And the nerd body study, I know a lot of body nerds, and I love hanging out with them and just sharing what we're seeing and learning um so to me they're they're not that different even though like on the surface they look pretty different um i mean i think like one of the things that i've thought a lot about is you know i was raised catholic uh, i went to catholic school went through the whole all the sacraments all that fun stuff um was hugely damaging to me um there's so much that i internalized um and went through growing up in that environment. And it wasn't like hardcore, we were not hardcore church people or anything, but like just being in that environment for so many years of my formative like youth. Um, in my early twenties, I spent a ton of time uh, hanging out on like atheist message boards and with like ICQ friends talking about how to like heal our trauma. For those who are younger, um, that was before we had social media um, in the nineties. And really learning how to like heal my relationship with like my upbringing. Um, there was a lot of people online who were talking about how they got over or are healing from their, um, you know, organized religious uh, upbringings. Um, you know, and I got pretty hardcore like about the whole atheism thing for a while there. It was kind of like the pendulum swinging in the really opposite direction as a response to what I had been exposed to. And you know, today, I think I've come to a very different approach. I'm still not like thinking that there's a God who's judging me, <laughs> going to send me to hell. Um, but, you know, I do have like a deep sense of spirituality that is connected to my, you know, thoughts about the natural world and thoughts about my place in the universe and the fact that we exist at all. And it doesn't feel um, religious per se, but spiritual on some level and so you know I think I'm still a pretty hardcore atheist but like I'm also really open to more spiritual perspectives so I think that's there's a bit of a, a contrast there um, yeah I, I don't want to be a broken record here like we haven't talked about a lot of these things before and so I'm just kind of 
I'm partially surprised and partially not surprised that like there's so many things in common. Like I was also raised, although I was raised much more loosely uh, Catholic, but yeah, I ended up getting quite to uh, becoming, it was a quite a militant atheist in my kind of late teens and early twenties. And then I realized like, oh, hey, people don't really like being around me very much because I'm like too like negative and grouchy. And so I had to like, you know, chill out. And um, so, yeah, that's, it's just, it's interesting and funny to me that, that we have that in common as well. <laughs> um yeah, so this next question is a new one that I'm, I'm starting to try. And uh, again, the questions on this show, they've been mostly stable since, I guess, around kind of episode 10-ish now. But um, every once in a while, I still think of kind of a new one or a new way to frame an old one. Um, but so I've been asking, and the context of this question is this idea that can people complain about, like, you know, why do we have to learn this in school? Because we never use it once we get out of school. So it's this idea of, the, you know, we're forced to learn things that we don't actually use Um but then I was curious because we do learn a lot of things once we get out into the real world. And sometimes we learn a thing through our job or through one of our hobbies. And then we unexpectedly end up using that skill in a completely unrelated context. And it's like, oh, wow, I'm glad I had that skill, even though that's not how it was kind of initially meant to, to be, you know, practiced. But so if you can think of, of an example like that for you, something, a skill that you learned, whether it was through your job or through one of your, your hobbies and interests that you used in a very unexpected way. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's hula hooping. I, I picked up hula hooping because I wanted something positive to do when I was at electronic music festivals. And it was just something fun that I was doing. And I had no expectation that I was going to be working as like a contract circus performer in Toronto for five years. You know, like I, I quit my part-time retail job in grad school and just made money spinning fire at corporate accounting events, <laughs> like random, like, I can't say it was like um, artistically deeply satisfying most of the time, but there's a lot of money in entertainment. And uh, it was, it was really awesome to be able to you know, take breaks from being at the computer and working on schoolwork, I would pick up my hoop and dance. And I, I did that all throughout my day during grad school. And as I was building those skills, I was translating that into income, which was just not expected. So my self care became a source of financial support for me, which is also self care having financial stability. So yeah, yeah, it was really surprising. That's very cool. And yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of everyone's dream is to be able to like make any kind of money from things that you enjoy doing. Um, yeah. So, and this next question here is a, is a tried and true one on this show. Um, and I've kind of been, I guess, keep it focused more on pre-pandemic because we don't really quite know yet how things are going to renormalize once, you know, vaccine is widely distributed and, and all that kind of stuff. Like eventually, you know, work is kind of going to go back to more like what it used to be, but maybe not quite exactly the same. But for you, and if you want to talk about during the pandemic as well, you can, but um, what has your schedule been like? And uh, as a subset of that, what is, do you have a peak time of day? Yeah, so my schedule actually didn't change much with the pandemic because my job before that was full-time work from home. So um, I, I have been working from home full-time for over three years now. Um, and I would say that the biggest thing for me is my peak time of day has really changed depending on the season of my life. Like when I was 
when I was a rave kid and going to grad school, like I was a total night owl. Like my, my peak working hours were 9 p.m. to 3 or 4 a.m. when it was dark and it was quiet. And I was really able to be on the computer doing work productively. Um, now that I've been working like a nine to five quote unquote job for many, many years, like my clock has had to flip. I cannot stay up late. I need my sleep. I value sleep a lot. I did not sleep enough the entire seven years I lived in Toronto. I'm still recovering from that six years later. Um, so, you know, I, I get up pretty early now. Like I'm usually waking up around 6.30, 7 o'clock. Um, and I try to have a lot of time in the morning because I'm just not good at getting right on my computer screen. So I find it really hard to work on a computer when the sun is up. Like I would much rather be out in the world doing things. I don't want to go exercise at night when it's dark. Like I want to do my errands in the day. I want to be out on the street in the day. And I, I feel alert and productive early, but not to be on a screen. So it really depends like what I need to focus on. And working from home has been good in that I do have a bit more flexibility to work in the evenings, depending on the day. It's not universal, but I try to make it work as much as I can. And, you know, generally I'm fortunate enough to have the type of job where as long as the work is getting done, then if you want to do it at 9 p.m., that's okay. As long as you answer the phone when someone calls you. So, you know, there's, I'm grateful for that flexibility. Um, even if it means like my work hour probably like extends a little bit beyond the typical eight hours because kind of available, but not necessarily working <laughs> You know, my ideal is to like take a three to five hour break in the afternoon, you know, and like do a little work in the morning, get the day started and then take a big break in the afternoon and come back and like finish work later. That's kind of my preference. Yeah, I've kind of got a little bit of a thing like that, too. I've also been working from home full time just since last March, um, but it's it's a kind of a more flexible thing and yeah it's kind of more of a like as long as everything gets done by the time it needs to get done or like in a timely manner then because it's the whole idea of being, you know, being chained to your desk and you have to be at your desk and doing something from nine to five so if i kind of do like a three-hour burst and i get a whole bunch of stuff done then you know later in the afternoon i kind of just keep an eye on the email a bit more and um that kind of thing. But I am now living in a basement apartment, which kind of sucks. So it's, it's like not having any sense of the passage of time or if it's sunny or raining or, and if I come out of my room, I've been here for a few hours, like working on stuff. I'm like, Oh, I really want to like, you know, go for a walk or something and I go out and it's like, it's like pouring and thundering. and just like, Oh, <laughs> so um, yeah, I, I don't know what I'm going to do about that, but I don't plan to live in this basement apartment forever. So um yeah, so with that said, the next question here, and this is one I've slightly modified, which started with last episode. And this is what I'm talking about close relationships, because obviously the people in our lives are who are close to us, whether they're family, friends, coworkers, if they're not kind of supportive and encouraging, that can obviously be a big kind of a hindrance for us, unless, you know, yeah, usually even if we're like a, you know, a strong, confident person, anytime someone's kind of not really 
you know, got your back there, it, it's it's a bit of a detriment. So I come up with this idea of, of a hype hat and a heavy hat. And so hype hats are people who hype you up and kind of, you know, encourage you and, uh, you know, really try to like build, help build your confidence and, and keep you moving forward. And then heavy hats, obviously, are people that kind of weigh you down and discourage you and make you doubt yourself. So um, without naming any specific names, unless you want to, um, can you think of an example of one hype hat in your life and one heavy hat, if maybe if they're not there anymore, but they used to be, however you want to tackle this one. Um, yeah. So, I mean, hype hats, I have a few very small number of close friends. I'm not like a total social butterfly. I do not, I do not love being around lots of people. So I've got a, a couple of very close relationships that are huge supports in my life. And, you know, I think what I'll say about that is, it took me a long time to find these people. Like, I feel like all through my 20s, I didn't know who I was. And I was surrounded by people who I just met out of convenience. And, you know, I just met along the way. And they weren't necessarily people that I wanted to confide in. Um, and I found that to be quite an isolating experience. And I became very individualistic and felt like I just had to do everything alone. And it was kind of like, through that process of going deep into the individualistic way of thinking that I really uncovered more about myself that allowed me to then actively seek out the people in my life who support me most. They get it. They're on the same wavelength as me. I have friends we talk about T-mail, which is telepathy mail, because I'll be thinking about someone and then, you know, I get a text from them or an email from them and it happens all the time. And it's like, oh, you, you got my T-mail. Like, this is, this is great. Um, I have a really close friend who I refer to as my alternative gut. So if I need a gut check and I'm not sure if my gut's telling me what I need to hear or if I'm not trusting it, I like check in with her gut <laughs> and she does the same for me. So, you know, to me, the hype hats are like, there's reciprocity there. Like there's balance in that relationship. Um, it's not what they give me, but what we give each other. And that's what makes it so special. Um, and I, And I also think that there's not really like, I'm really averse to the idea of like a soulmate or like finding that the one person in your life who's going to be your, your everything. Um, I think it's really important that we have a web of resiliency in our life. And for some people that might mean 30 friends. And for some people that might mean three friends, but like whatever it is for you, um, you know, knowing that you've got some resiliency in your friend network, I think is the best thing you can do to hype yourself up because you know that there's always something somewhere where there's a, a bit of support for you. Um, when it comes to heavy hats, um, I mean, there's a lot I could say about that, um, that I don't know that I really need to get into. Um, but I think I'll just say that I have been to connect, I've been connected with some people who've had, um, definitely periods of a lot of mental distress in their life. And, um, really like a lot landing on me to support that person um, when I wasn't necessarily, it wasn't necessarily healthy for me to be the person supporting them. Um, and the energy suck that sort of comes along with that. And the efforts I made in that period of time to reach out to people for support, people that were close to this other person. So I was kind of like, hey guys, like your friend is in need and I can't, I can't give them what they need. And um being really disappointed in how the collective kind of responded to that call for help. 
Um, yeah, so I guess just, you know, being a bit more discerning about who I can rely on and um, not letting people suck out your energy completely. I don't know. I'm not really articulating it well because it's so emotional and there's so much that I could say, but um, it's, yeah, it's, it's tough. And I think it's just important for people to know when, when you can help someone who's in need and, and when it's important to, but also discerning when it's not your place or you don't have the capacity and, and, and being able to learn to walk away um, is really important. Yeah, the the kind of crux of that question, what I'm what I try to get at, which I think you did address, is just this idea of distinguishing between uh, like healthy presences in your life and and more unhealthy. You know, whether it's like as I as I talked about on the previous episode, I've kind of identified some of my own um, la- like behaviors or, or default responses that kind of, as you said, you, you have to recognize your own limitations and and not overextend yourself. Maybe not that the other person is necessarily trying to like, you know, uh, drain you, but just that maybe you're allowing it to happen or you're um, not setting good boundaries for yourself. And so I just, I'm trying to help people learn to be able to better identify the people that they do or should want to keep in their lives and and people who maybe they don't and then they can start to work on putting a bit more of a buffer or a distance there that kind of thing so thank you for sharing uh, your answer as it was and um I, I have something to just add in response to that sure. I think that like um it's it's really it has been easy for me in the past when something is difficult in relationship to just drop it and walk away completely and like that's not always the solution either. And, you know, it's really important to know when, when you can help and when you just really shouldn't. And sometimes that line is very gray and fuzzy. And sometimes the relationship with that person can change and the answer might be different. And it's, it's really, I think, important to take a not binary black and white kind of approach to thinking about the connections you have with people and recognizing they're always evolving in every moment. Yeah, once again, back to the idea of change is the only constant. And so just try to try to keep assessing each day, each moment, and or I shouldn't say each moment, because that could be very, very tiring. But just, just keep checking in with yourself on a somewhat regular basis and try to make sure that, you know, things are, are going okay. Um, so that said, um, the next question we I like to ask about mental health because it's obviously something that everybody experiences and everyone has like, you know, different stuff going on. Some people might be doing better. Some people might be doing worse. And again, whatever you feel comfortable sharing, you don't have to say anything that you don't want to, but um, have there been any um, mental health uh, or possibly even like physical health struggles that you've had in your life and how have you worked through them? Sure. So um, I, need to do a lot to actively manage how I interact with the world. Um, The way my brain is wired has led me to experiment with a lot of forms of self-medication over the years. And I don't know if I'm going to delve too deeply into that, but I would just say to people that um, it's important to understand um, what your struggles are in the world and to try to really do the work to identify 
why a struggle is happening. I, I spend a lot of my, a lot of energy um, like masking so that I can actually go about my day. Like I'm not necessarily who I am always at work. There's a lot of things that I wear <laughs> that I think for most people probably are pretty subtle because I've been doing it my whole life. Um, but I've been really trying to sort of understand how I can relax my masking. Um, and it's, it's not always easy to do in, in different environments. So that's kind of just an ongoing thing that I'm working with. And yeah, movement helps for sure. But people also think I'm weird when I do my dancing at my desk at work. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> um, and I, I deal with a lot of environmentally related depression. Like I'm, I'm confronted with this stuff every single day. And I watch how people fight to not allow a four-story apartment building for people in their community. And I'm like, how are we ever going to tackle the global approach that's needed to actually do better when we can't even accommodate 20 apartments in like an urban neighborhood? Like, how are we ever going to get there? And it's, it's really intense sometimes. And so I, you know, I try to just be in nature to, to heal that as much as I can, you know, and, and to try to celebrate the successes where I see them. You know, 20 years ago, there were no bike lanes in cities that I was ever seeing. And while I wish that things were moving a lot faster, um, I have to also celebrate the changes that we have and, you know, just trying to find little ways to celebrate success can really go a long way for me, uh, getting out of some of those like negative spirals. <laughs> Definitely. That uh, makes a lot of sense. And thank you for sharing that. Uh, again, I'm sure that there are some people in my audience who will relate to that. Um, yeah. So the next question here, and this is kind of our, I guess, last one that's that's a little bit more heavy um i like to ask uh, or the, the the preface of this question is that failure can be a good thing because usually if we tried something and it didn't go right then we probably or hopefully learn something from it so that we can do it better the next time so what uh what is something in your life that didn't quite go the way you might have hoped uh, but you learned something valuable from that experience and what was it um yeah i think for this it's best to kind of speak a bit generally. Um, I think where I failed in my sort of late teens and early 20s was understanding the nature of boundaries, like whether it was my own boundaries, whether it was the boundaries of the people around me, understanding the dif difference between a need and a want, um, a rule and a boundary. Um, it, it's taken me a long time to really learn how to relate to people. I made a lot of mistakes in how I relate to people because it's not always really easy for me to connect with people. I've done a lot of work to get over that and to try to really learn how to read people <laughs> um, in my interactions with them. So, you know, I made a ton of mistakes. I've hurt people. I've been hurt. I've been emotionally stunted because of my lack of awareness, uh, you know, and I've had to heal from that and continue to heal from that. Um, so yeah, it's just taken me a long time to really understand 
my own boundaries and others' boundaries and to be able to like empathize with people um, in in more intimate ways. So it's a little bit cryptic, my response. I'm not going to give you a specific, but that's that's kind of the theme that I've, of what I've learned from from that. Yeah, no, like I said, uh, you only share what you're comfortable sharing on the show. And I appreciate that even still, because again, it's, I think every answer is still something that people can potentially learn from. Um, so we're starting to kind of get to the end here, last couple of questions. Um, so we've kind of shared a lot of advice indirectly here, but I like to try to like distill it down at the end and um, so you have three groups of kind of people and you can give the same piece of advice for all three, or you can give separate individual advice to each group. But, uh, what advice would you give to a teenager? What advice would you give to uh, a 30 something? And what advice would you give to an elder or grandparent? I'm going to give the same advice to everybody. Um, three, three points. First, uh, get involved in the place where you live. Um, whatever that looks like to you. Um, you know, as a city planner, obviously I wish people would would care about what's happening in their city, but, you know, it could be something big or small. It could be caring for a little patch of grass outside your home. It could be picking up garbage in a park, like whatever it is that makes you feel connected to the place you are in. I think it's just really important at all ages um, and, and sort of recognizing that, you know, as we go through our lives, um, how we want to connect, what we're drawn to, it changes. And to really just follow that, like really allow yourself to be okay with your interests changing and just know that if you feel pulled to contribute to your community in some way, that's absolutely exactly what you should be doing. <laughs> Don't worry about what it is that you're pulled to do. Um, I mean, hopefully it's positive and you're not like, uh, you know, destroying things, but um you know, look for, look for what you feel pulled to do. And there's always, there's always more to contribute to. So, so just trust that what you're pulled to do is the right thing. Um, you know, and kind of in relation to that, ask yourself constantly how you can build more resilience in your life. So whether that is social resilience, like I alluded to with like your friends, um, cultural resilience, understanding the place you're in or the place you come from, your own physical resilience in your body and your health, um, kind of looking at at how as you know you age and move through life, the the things you need are going to change, and what you need to be resilient is going to change, um, and and really actively seek out things that will provide a resilient support for you, whatever that is, because it won't just happen. You have to actively build resilience in your life it's it's one of the things that we lose so easily um and it's really i think important for all of us to to build more resilience into into our lives um and i guess my final piece of advice is very like pandemic timely but uh this is a, a helpful reminder that exercise boosts your immune system and an active and healthy immune system will amplify more strongly the effects of a vaccine. So if you're about to get your vaccine, which all of us probably can in the next few months and weeks, now is a great time to be doing a bit of exercise, like get moving, whatever that looks like to you, even if it's just going for a walk, just, just do things regularly, get your immune system really boosted 
and be your best vaccine receiving self. <laughs> Great advice to round out the show here. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, so the next, uh, the, now we're going to flip the script for, for a moment and I'm going to let the guest ask me a question, put me on the spot. Um, and I don't know what they're going to ask because uh, they, I, Generally, I don't. T I tell them not to tell them, or I tell them they don't have to tell me. Um, so uh, yeah, let's let's hear what you're going to put me on the hot seat with today. Sure. So um, I mean, I know that you are interested in learning about the land that we live on and the indigenous peoples of the land. And you know, in Canada, we talk a lot about reconciliation and the idea of reconciliation with indigenous people. Um, and there's a lot of different ideas about what that means. So I'm curious, like for you as a white settler descendant, um, what does reconciliation mean to you? What are you interested in focusing on to advance this concept of reconciliation with the first peoples of the land that we live on? That is a really good question, and uh, I will do my best to, to give a coherent, non-rambly answer. Um, it, it's, it's definitely one thing to be put on the spot. Um, but I, so I do personally believe in, and this, there's a few things like this that I've, I've found where there's this concept where it was like, oh, well, if we just like, you know, made this change that's so obvious and that should have been made, then, then it's going to completely upend everything we know. But, you know, looking at it, logically and rationally, you know, we are on stolen land and we've often pushed the, the native peoples out of this land. And uh, so I do believe that we should give the land back. And I, I don't know what that would mean necessarily. Would that mean that we would all kind of have to like, you know, we would all have to like move out of here and then you know, the indigenous peoples would come and get their pick of places and then whatever is left. I don't know how that would work, but um, I do feel that, you know, that would be the, you know, definitely a place to start is to, to give land back and um, to like, I think we all need to be better at contacting our, you know, our MPPs and, and contacting the prime minister and the premiers and saying like, just the way that indigenous people have been, left out to dry essentially and many indigenous communities uh, remote communities do not still do not have uh, access to um reliable like clean drinking water like atawapiskat comes to mind and that's been a thing for years now and it's kind of like uh the flint not exactly the same thing as the flint water crisis in michigan but it's just one of those things you hear about it and people talk about it but then why does nothing ever happen because there's not enough pressure from the population so um, those are kind of two things that, that come to mind. Um, and I think just, yeah, like going and learning more about the peoples of your area and kind of maybe their history. And, um, so you can kind of educate the people that, you know, your friends, your coworkers, your family, because the more that we know, the more empathy we can have and the more we can see what's wrong with the way things are. And, you know, be educated to reach out to our representatives and say, hey, this isn't okay. What are you going to do about this? Um, I had something else in my mind. Oh, yes. Um, here in Toronto, I know that there is a place called the Native Canadian Centre, which I have been meaning to go to for a little while now. I'm not sure if it's actually open right now because of the lockdowns, but that is a place I'm definitely planning to go to soon as another point of, uh, of education. Um, so 
those are just some kind of quick uh, ideas off the top of my head. I, is that uh, is that a good answer for you? <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love okay. it. Yeah, um, yeah. Land back is a super. Yeah, it's it's such an important question. And what does it look like? And you know, I'm I'm really encouraged by some of the efforts that have been made in Vancouver. We we have given land back in the urban space uh, to a lot of the different First Nations that are here. Um, and, you know, it's a starting point. Um, we've been giving a lot of more wild places back for Indigenous stewardship, too. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's a long journey, but um, you're right. You've got to keep the pressure on the politicians or else it doesn't happen. This has to be yeah. a, why is this not like something people are talking about every day? Like it has to be every day or else it yeah. won't happen. And and I forgot to mention. Uh, I know I kind of. I think I mentioned it earlier on the show, but uh, you know, donating because like I know there's different groups that are working on like conservation and preservation of either uh, the actual like land and communities or just the culture. Um, and so those are things that again, if you can't physically go and like help them stop the RCMP from stealing land illegally, like it's still actively happening. Uh, and of course they're putting these, they're trying to put these pipelines through indigenous land versus just through like, you know, the white people land. And that's another thing to think about and to kind of ask like, why, why does it have to go, you know, like there's, there's anyways, um, again, lots to, lots of research and to look into with that. And, it's something that we, we do all need to, to care more about. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very easy for us to kind of just wake up in our nice warm comfy beds in the morning and, and, and go to work and then, well, I'm tired. I'm just going to watch Netflix and relax at night. And I think we do need to try and carve out a little bit more time in our days for helping other people that, that definitely deserve it. Um, so yeah, the next section here is going to be charities and causes. I didn't know if there's anything else that you wanted to uh, to bring up or if that uh, kind of covers it for you. I, I put four on my list. Um, okay. I'll, describe, I'll describe them shortly. Um, and we can put links, I'm assuming, in the show notes and everything, right? So yeah. um, the first is the Ancient Forest Alliance. It's a group here in BC that's holding the government to account for old growth logging that's going on. Um, thousands of trees like that are hundreds and hundreds of years old are being logged every day in BC. And it is completely unacceptable. The government has said that they want to stop it and they have failed horribly at making progress on that front. Um, So I encourage you to check out the Ancient Forest Alliance. They've been doing a lot of fantastic work to bring attention to this and they could use people's support, um, even if it's like letter writing and, and things like that. So if you care about these fragile and magnificent and incredible ecosystems, I highly encourage you to check that out. Um, the Hogan's Allen Alley Society here in BC is a organization that advocates for Black Vancouverites who have basically been enduring the legacies of urban renewal and erasure. Um, like so many cities, um, Black communities have been raised and destroyed to build mega highways and other types of infrastructure and Vancouver is no different and Hogan's Alley is doing a lot to advance the land the land conversations here about how we can support those communities that have been marginalized and increase their capacity to actually participate in a meaningful way in our city building processes. Um, I encourage you to check out your local bike advocacy organization, whatever it is. Uh, In Toronto, I'll plug Cycle Toronto. I sat on the board for a while. A fantastic group of people doing education and advocacy. Out here in Vancouver, metro area, it's um, Hub Cycles. 
but most communities have someone or a group of people that are doing bike advocacy. And I encourage you to get in touch with them, give them your support, help advance support for these types of projects in your local community as much as you can. Um, and then the last big one I'll say is Fair Vote Canada. So Fair Vote Canada uh, advocates for changing our voting system to one of proportional representation. I've been an active volunteer with Fair Vote Canada since 2007. And damn, I wish we had like, actually, we didn't need to exist anymore. <laughs> like the fact that there have been so many opportunities to change the voting system since I got involved with this group and we are still not doing it. Um, so many of our problems around how we make decisions for the collective, um, all of this talk about reconciliation, uh, if we actually had a government that represented the voice of the people and the diversity of perspectives, we would see better action. We would see better action on climate. We would see better action on equity, inclusivity, land back, all of these things. So the voting system underpins every single policy decision we make. And I, I can't stand it when people say this is a fringe issue. This is the central core issue of how our decision-making processes are designed. And we would love to have you uh, helping out in your local community, raising awareness. Um, we do lots of letter writing. We do lots of fun campaigns. Um, and so it's a great organization. If you even just want to learn more about the issue, um, the Fair Vote Canada website has a ton of resources on it. Uh, amazing research. So uh, it's a great place to get started if you don't know too much about it. Absolutely. And I actually just remembered something else that I did want to mention since we're talking so much about Indigenous stuff here. I remember seeing, I think it was, I think it was a study. Um, I don't remember this. I haven't, it's just popping in my memory, so I don't have the details handy. But I remember seeing a study that was saying that Indigenous peoples and populations are significantly better at um, not only maintaining like uh, natural land, but also the biodiversity that pre-exists there. Whereas, you know, colonizers tend to destroy and, and to cause things to go extinct. So uh, in along with that idea of giving the land back, like I do think that part of that would also be see, uh, going to the indigenous, uh, you know, elders or the, the, the people with the more of the expertise on, on, on land conservation and species conservation and, to say, okay, we've caused all this destruction. How can we start to, to heal and to renew and replenish? And so if we did give the land back, I, I feel like, you know, big metropolitan cities probably wouldn't be very long for this world, but that's probably for the best anyways. Um, but yeah, that's something I, I encourage people to look that up as well, because that, uh, it, it didn't really surprise me to learn it, but it was just seeing it kind of like, They've literally like, you know, got data on that to back it up. And, and that just really tells you something. So the people who kind of treat the earth and the, the wildlife um, and themselves the best kind of overall uh, holistically are, you know, the people who have been really kind of forced out of greater society, which is just a travesty. So, um, yeah, I mean, indigenous people have been sustainably managing the land for thousands of years before we all showed up. And it, the Canadian government does have some programs now where they've given back park, like national park areas and things to indigenous land stewards saying like, look, like this is your territory. And rather than saying, can you come help us make it better? It's like, just give it to them and stop asking them to tell you what to do. Just let them do it. Let them live on their land. Let them practice their cultural practices. 
Um, that's how we decolonize the land. There's so much demand on the valuable time of Indigenous people, and we don't um, we don't adequately, you know, give them resources to actually engage with these colonial systems. Like we're asking them to engage in these colonial processes, as opposed to saying, "You live your life on your land, and let's go from there." Um, so it's. I got so much I could say. We do a whole show about about these topics for sure. Yeah. Um, oh, good. I thought I was muted there for a second. <laughs> um, so that said, uh, we're at the plug section, and I, I will try to keep mine short, but I didn't know if you had anything that you were comfortable to share as far as like kind of social media presences or any websites or anything that you would want people to check out. Yeah, I mean, I think the the easiest way if you're interested in city building and some of the political advocacy stuff I've been mentioning would be to follow me on Twitter. Um, my handle there is mobot underscore RPP. Um, and I talk a lot about planning and advocacy issues there, environmental issues. Um, I also have an under construction website, which is currently just a landing page, uh, spiralbody.ca. Um, that is a place for movement offerings uh, and other types of collaborations. So if you're interested in being connected with me there, my landing page will let you sign up for my newsletter. I send maybe a newsletter or two a year, so I'm not going to bombard you. But if you are interested in learning more about what I'm doing in that space, that's a place you can go. Very cool. Um, and so, like I said, I've got a lot of things to plug, but I, we're, we've got a, a, a healthy hour and a half going here. So like I, um, I think I, yeah, I think I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I've started doing Twitch. Um, right now I've mostly been uh, streaming myself playing video games, but I do have other things planned like kind of art streams and chat streams and things. So um yeah, that's uh, twitch.tv slash Artemis Creates. Uh, my website, as always, is artemiscreates.com, and I am Artemis Creates on basically every social media platform. There's only two where it's an underscore in between them, but um, yeah, and then the uh, hat collecting, I kind of mostly just post updates about each episode on on there because it's, it's a lot to try to post much more than that. Um, yeah, I'm looking to try writing some music on a Twitch stream at some point. I'm not sure when exactly. Oh, yeah. I also forgot. I have a book. Um, it's called Parker and Tucker, Private Investigators. It's a short fiction novella, which you can also order if you go to my website. I can plug that and say I've read it, and it's great. And I think it's a great thing to send to young readers in your life as well, kind of like the young adult page. So... Thank you so much for that. (laughs) Yes, I've had a few of my friends tell me that they did uh, purchase it and and read it. And I haven't gotten uh, reviews back from everyone yet, but I haven't heard a bad thing. So, Um, yeah. And with that said, uh, yeah, I'm just going to keep it kind of short and sweet at that right now. Um, One thing I'll just I'll just mention this really briefly. I might as well. So um, this is a glass jar full of gumballs and I'm doing a little uh, giveaway contest thingy. Um, so when I was on Queer in Time Kitchen recently, I did uh, two draws to give away two copies of my book. So I'm going to do another one. So this can be another copy of my book. If you can correctly guess the number of jelly beans, or sorry, not jelly beans, uh, gumballs, in, and they are actually purple, but my camera is making them look blue for some reason. Um, yeah. For, so this, so the people listening, you're going to have to come watch the video so that you can see. I'll give you a better view here of what we got going on here. So um, I'm going to 
tentatively put a um, a May first deadline, just in case, like you know, people don't get it right away. I'll give it. Um, that's about a month and a half. Um, and if at that point no one's guessed correctly, I might just take whoever got closest without going over. And you can, you know, tweet at me or email me or DM me or leave a comment on this video um, with your guests. And uh, yeah, good luck to all of you. But yeah, so I wanted to say, lastly, for the people listening and viewing, um, if you want to leave a comment, uh, which you'd probably have to do on YouTube, about your favorite thing that you learned or your favorite uh, point of discussion from this episode, I'm looking to get a little bit more fan interaction here. So now we're going to do the hat part. Uh, we're going to wrap this up uh, real quick. Um, again, this is going to be a surprise. Neither of us knows what the other person is going to wear. Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? How about we do it at the same time? Okay. You want to count down? One, two, three. <laughs> we actually did that at exactly the same time. I was really happy with that. <laughs> So you're wearing kind of like a like a comfy beanie I'm, toque I'm wearing kind of a thing. Comfy toque. I thought yeah. a lot about which hat I should wear, and this is just the hat I wear the most lately. So it just felt like the right one for mm. today. <laughs> yeah, well, this one, this hat is inspired by it being almost spring now. Spring is being kind of dawning on us, so it's got some of my favorite colors and a nice, cute little bow on it. And uh, it's one of the few hats I can actually wear over top of my headphones, although it puts most of my face in shadow. <laughs> it feels um, like we're straddling the seasons right now. We've got like <laughs> the, the winter, spring shoulder action happening. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, I, I can't wait until, because uh, like I do, I do like just wearing tank tops, but uh, I'm also very sensitive to uh, extreme cold and extreme hot. So um, we'll see how long it is before I'm complaining it's too hot. <laughs> Um, but yeah, thanks so much for, uh, for, for doing that whole thing with me. And this is a really fun and lightning episode. And, uh, I hope that the viewers also enjoyed it. So, uh, I'm going to also admit we pre-recorded the bonus episode this time, um, for, for various reasons. So we're not actually going to be going to do that now, but, uh, it was fun and interesting too. So you should definitely go check that out on Patreon if you want to. And, uh, yeah. So, and I guess last thing, if you want to leave a review on, on iTunes or, or wherever you can kind of find the podcast or, you know, subscribe and like on YouTube, I really appreciate that. And yeah, that's, that's pretty much that. So thank you for watching. Uh, stay curious, keep collecting those hats. And until next time, this has been Hat Collecting. <laughs>